0: Hello, hello. Awesome. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it. And today we are in the book of Acts. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, verse 17. We're going to be going on from there. We're getting to the end of the book of Acts. Now, when you come to the end of the book of Acts, the book gets long. (laughs) The stories get drawn out. It's uh, long swaths of text here at the end. We see uh, courtroom scenes. We see ambushes. We see travel logs. Uh, There's things that we read in the book of Acts that are a lot unlike the other parts of the book of Acts. And today is almost that cutoff because today Paul comes off the mission field. He's not retiring. Uh, He's not hanging up his boots. He's involuntarily coming off the mission field today, coming to the end of his last missionary journey, and that's because he's put in chains for the last time. In fact, we see Paul chained today in this passage, and to our knowledge, he is never free from chains again, whether that's chains around his door or chains around his wrists. And so we're here at the end of the book of Acts, looking for the Word of God to teach us what the Word of God wants to teach us, or God wants to teach us through His Word. Now, a little bit of background here, where we're going. Uh, We've seen this as we've gone through the book of Acts already. Paul, as he's gone on his missionary journeys, he has one message, a singular message, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, sorry, yeah, Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Jesus is the message of Paul's mission. The gospel is the message that he goes forth to proclaim. But it's also obvious if you've read Paul's letters or if you've followed with us through this book of Acts that it's not the only thing he talks about. He talks about the gospel. He wants to make sure people know about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But he's also interested to expand upon the gospel by teaching what it practically looks like to follow Jesus. And one area that Paul talks quite a bit about is something that we talk very infrequently about. And that is the Old Testament law and the question of whether believers need to follow the Old Testament law. You know, there's, there's maybe a reason why we don't talk about that all that much. Maybe we've settled that in our minds, settled that in our hearts. But when we come to this passage today, we're going to see that at this time, it wasn't settled yet. Even though a decision had been made, the debate was still hot in the air. Not everybody was on the same page with this question yet. And it's understandable why that would be. After all, Christianity, in the eyes of Rome, was still seen as a Jewish sect. And a lot of people still saw it that way. After all, it was founded by a Jewish man, started amongst Jewish people. He was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, or in other words, the King of the Jews. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that they would assume that maybe to follow the King of the Jews, you might have to be a Jew. (laughs) Uh, It seems logical, actually, when you think about it that way. But as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen again and again that as Gentiles came into the church as they joined the community, joined the fellowship, um, the leaders of the church, the elders and James and Jerusalem, this all happened back in Acts chapter 15. But they got together to ask this question, do you need to be a Jew to follow the king of the Jews? Do you need to follow the Old Testament law if you're going to follow Christ? And all the way back in Acts chapter 15, the, the elders led by James in Jerusalem made the decision, no, you, you, you don't. Gentiles do not have to follow the Jewish law. They don't have to convert to Judaism if they're going to convert to Christianity. So that's a bit of a backdrop. That's that's the context. We might say it's the theological backdrop of what we're about to see today. Though the, the, the issue's been decided, the question is still hot in the minds of this young, early church community. So have all that in mind as we come to Acts chapter 21. Today, twenty-one through uh, twenty-two, twenty-nine. Because as you do, as we read this passage, you're gonna be a little bit surprised by what you see Paul do, and a little bit surprised by what the elders in Jerusalem tell Paul to do. But at the end of this passage, you'll be clear to us also that Paul's example here actually gives us a picture of how the gospel shapes the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's dive into this passage. Let's let the story sweep us away, and let's learn what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ in this way. So let me pray, and we'll dive dive into Acts 21, 17 and following. Hmm. Father, this week as as ever, your word, I I feel like I, I need to repent of this, Lord. I continually come to your word, doubtful, that a passage like this would have something meaningful to say to us. How can a story of a riot, which is what this passage is, teach us about what it looks like to follow you today? But Father, once again, your word surprises. It proves that it's living and active. So Father, use this passage in us. Soften our hearts to hear it. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, do a work in us that we couldn't expect or, or contrive by our own power. Work through us today. Work through your living and active word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts 21, verse 17 through 26. Let's start there. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in to us, sorry, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders who were present. And after greeting them, he released. I'm sorry, I'm having issues today. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is a missionary report. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. and Take these men and purify them yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you But that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, who have uh, sent a letter uh, with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the day of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. All right, we'll stop there. So Paul comes to Jerusalem. He comes and he reports to James and the elders all the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And they glorify God. They praise God for the fruit that they see in Paul's ministry. But then they warn him. Hey, Paul... There are some people in Jerusalem who aren't so happy with you. Actually, there's not just some people in Jerusalem who aren't so happy with you. There are believing Jews in Jerusalem that aren't that happy with you. And that's important. The people that are upset with Paul are believers. We might call these people Messianic Jews. These are Jews, culturally Jews, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. So the people who are mad at Paul are his brothers in Christ. And so James and the other elders in Jerusalem they tell him, hey, these guys are zealous for the law. They've gotten the impression, therefore, that you are trying to destroy the law. They're not going to be too pleased about that. They're going to hear that you're in town. Now, what would have given them an impression like that? Well, maybe because Paul went forth bearing the message that James and the elders gave him to proclaim, (laughs) that the Gentiles don't have to follow the law. In other words, uh, the reason why they would think that is because Paul's message all throughout his ministry, resounding from town to town, is that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Romans 3.28. In other words, that a person's works has nothing to do with whether or not he is in right standing with God. A person's works has nothing to do with whether or not God accepts her. That God accepts and loves and embraces people, not based upon what We have done, but what Christ has done, right? As Janice was saying a moment ago, not based upon our lives, but upon his perfect life, the life we could have never lived. The law, in other words, Jesus came. He did not destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And let me read again the passage that that, uh, Janice read just a moment ago. For God has done... What the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is the key part. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or, I mean, man, maybe we should just take Jesus' word for it, right? When he says in Matthew 5, 17, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Followers of Jesus no longer look to the Old Testament law to find approval in the eyes of God. Jesus has won that for us. Amen, right? And um, we we think about the law. The law was a good thing. The law was a good gift from a good God to help the people of God know how to have relationship with God. Praise God. (laughs) The law is a good thing for us today because it shows us the holy nature of God. And it shows us that we are in need of a Savior. Praise God for the law. The law is a gift, but the law cannot accomplish our salvation. The law cannot accomplish our redemption. Jesus did that when he fulfilled the law. It might seem like a little bit of a nuance, but it's the truth at the foundation of our faith. So it begs the question here, when we we look at this passage, why do the elders tell Paul to keep the law? (laughs) Hey, if the law is no longer... Binding on us, if Christ fulfilled it for us, wh- why is he? Why are they telling him to go purify himself? To it seems uh, f- finish this purification rite called the the Nazarite vow. Why? Why is he? Why is he doing that? Is Paul being a hypocrite? <laughs> Feels like hypocrisy a little bit. Is he? Is he being a coward? Is he giving up his um, his convictions for the sake of just saving some face to protect himself? Well, I mean, man, we see over and over. Paul is no coward. So what's going on here? I think there's a pretty simple explanation, and here it is. Paul follows the law not because it matters, but because it doesn't. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, no. I see your head shaking. Paul follows the law not because it matters to the Lord, but because it doesn't matter to the Lord. Here's what I mean. In Romans 8, uh, 3.28, as I read a moment ago, a man is justified, that means made right before God, by faith apart from works of the law. And there's other times in Paul's letter where he says things like this, Galatians 5.6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. <laughs> like, they make no difference. Either way, yeah, uh, one thing or another. But he says also, if you rely upon these laws— I mean, read Galatians 3. If you rely upon these laws, you're still under a curse, (laughs) the curse of the Old Testament law. But if you trust in Christ, well, it doesn't matter. Either way, circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. So he's doing this in Jerusalem, going to the temple, fulfilling these vows, purifying himself, not because he thinks it matters to God, but because he knows he doesn't, that to God, these ritual purification laws and traditions, they make no difference either way, and some of his believing brothers don't understand that yet, and that's the key. They don't quite get it. They still haven't grown enough to understand that the law is no longer the way that they're able to find salvation and, 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 and uh, uh, redem- uh, righteousness in the eyes of God. And so even though Paul is free from the burden of these purification laws, Paul loves and desires unity with the brothers so much that he's willing to surrender his freedom for them. Say it a different way. He if his liberty is gonna get in the way of Christian unity, he's gonna lay down his liberty. He's gonna lay down his freedom. He's going to set aside his freedom for the sake of fellowship. Doing what he does not need to do so that he can continue to walk faithfully in unity with the people of God there in, in Jerusalem. This is the same thing that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with the weaker brother argument, if you remember that. In that passage, he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols, and he says, look, look, we're no worse off if we don't eat the meat sacrifice to idols, no, no better off if we do. So be careful, however, that you, you, uh, the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Don't exercise your freedom so that other people fall into sin. In love, lay down your freedom rather than asking a brother or sister to lay down their convictions. So let's think about this practically. What does that really look like? What does that actually mean to put the principles of Acts chapter 21 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, into effect here, this weaker brother (laughs) argument? Well, I've got, I think, an obviously appropriate example and an obviously inappropriate example to help us get a little sense of how we should actually live out the principles of this passage. I think the obviously appropriate example is uh, the example of, of alcohol what do we do with alcohol? I mean, the church has answered that question a lot of different ways, especially over the last hundred years or so. And there's a good reason why the church has wrestled with this so much. I mean, we look at the Bible, and it seems clear enough that alcohol in itself is not sinful. The perfect man drank alcohol. We, we see also that wine is a symbol of the, the abundance of the kingdom from from Revelation, or sorry from Genesis 50 all the way to the feast at the end, uh, wine, is a symbol of rejoicing and, and, and lavish, lavish blessing from the Lord. So it doesn't seem like alcohol in and of itself is, is a sin, but at the same time, if we, we've lived in this world long enough to know that alcohol can be used sinfully— <laughs> We've lived in this world long enough to know that alcohol can be used unwisely. If you look at the historical books of the Old Testament, story after story, think about like Lot and his daughters. Think about Noah. Over and over again, alcohol is used sinfully in the Bible. You look at the wisdom books over and over again. It says things like whoever is led astray by wine, by alcohol, is not wise. So alcohol is not a sin, but it can be destructive when used sinfully. It's not in and of itself a sin, but it can be used unwisely. And so because of that, Christians are thoughtful. We ask ourselves in love if we should drink and when we should drink. We don't only think about whether we are free to drink. Apparently we are. But is that the loving thing to do in this situation? And there might be times in life in love where we lay down our freedom for the sake of the brother. Lay down our freedom for the sake of building up and and staying united. And some even choose to permanently lay down that freedom in wisdom and love, not to drink. So I think that's the obviously appropriate application of, of this principle But here's an obviously inappropriate application of this principle. Now let's imagine a family comes to our church, and uh, maybe they're new believers who've come to Christ out of uh, Christian science. So Christian science is a cult, um, and they believe uh, that it is sinful to go to a doctor and to take uh, medicine. And so if they come to our church, should I stop going to the doctor? (laughs) Should I stop taking medicine when I'm sick? If my kids uh, have an infection or something, should I not get them the antibiotics they need, well, frankly, I'm going to choose to continue to go to the doctor. I'm going to continue to practice my freedom, my liberty, for the sake of my kids, for uh, for the sake of myself. And I'll even go a step further. I'll try to encourage them (laughs) to go to the doctor, too. Because just like the first example, the obviously appropriate example, I think in this example as well, the guiding factor here is love. We want what's best for them. We want to serve them. We want them to be treated in the most loving way. To push them forward in this process of growth. To help them understand the truth. And we can think of other examples that fall into this category where Christians don't agree exactly on what's permissible. It might be Halloween or, or a Christmas tree in your house. You know, There's, there's questions like this that cause Christians to sometimes disagree, and I wish that I could give you an ironclad, watertight answer for every single question like that. I can't. But let me encourage you in in this way. Let love be your guide here. Let love for the brothers and sisters be your guide here. Let love for Christ be your guide here. I'm gonna have four steps. There's, there's four steps to help you let love guide you through these questions, and I'll put them right up here on the screen. Here's the first one Love Christ enough to ask the question, is this sin? All right. that, maybe that's the obvious one. Love Christ enough to ask the question, is this or that issue a sin? And if you, if you pray about that and ser- search the scriptures for that and you realize it is a sin, well, well don't do it. Okay, that one's easy. <laughs> but what if it's not a sin? Well, move on to number two. Here it is. Love your brother or your sister enough to ask, will this build them up and bind us together? Love Jesus enough to ask, is this actually sin? And then also love your brother or your sister enough to ask, will this build us up and bind us together? Because if it will, this, this thing, whatever it is, if it will build them up and bind us Uh, us together, push them towards Christ, then not only is it permissible, it's encouraged. (laughs) Go for it. But if it's not, or if you don't know, if it's clearly not, then don't do it. But if it's unclear still, question number three, or step number three, take some time to pray, to seek your heart, (laughs) to seek your motivations, To seek the scriptures, to seek wise counsel in the church, to determine what path forward you should take. And then once you've picked your path, number four, in humility, this one's important, in humility, have grace with those who have thoughtfully taken a different path than you. So what do we do? When Christians don't agree on what is permissible as, as followers of Christ, number one, love Christ enough to not do it if it's sin. Love your brothers or sisters enough to not do it if it's not going to build them up and bind you together. Take the time to thoughtfully pray. Seek your heart. Seek wisdom. Seek scriptures. Seek counsel. And then in humility, have grace with those who have thoughtfully taken a different path than you. That's what we see in the first 10 verses, (laughs) but this is a long passage. (laughs) In the second half of this passage, the action, uh, the intensity is ratcheted up, but actually as you get to the end, you're going to think to yourself, how does all that fit together with what Ben said before? You're going to see at the end that it does. So let's do this. Listen to this story. Get swept away in the action and the narrative here. I'll pause for here and there to explain what's happening, and at the end I'm going to tie it together with love, okay? Let's do that. Join me in verse where are we 27 Acts 21:27 When the seven days were almost completed the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out Men of Israel help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place Moreover he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place uh, That's not true right We'll keep reading. For they have, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesians with him in the city, and they supposed Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune and to the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they, the crowd, stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, that's Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. All right. Let's pause there for a minute. The anticipated clash comes to pass, right? What, What the elders warned would happen actually happened. They say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. And it's not true. But when that happens, a riot breaks out with the whole city, not just believing Jews, but all Jews. All Jerusalem is stirred into confusion. They're shouting different things. The crowd is seizing, dragging, beating, seeking to kill, and the soldiers are chaining him and carrying him away. And in many ways, this is just the same old story for Paul. Uh, Let's let's continue on. Let's see what happens next. Because as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? (laughs) And he said, he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now, that sounds like a story, (laughs) but the proof is the, the message is he doesn't understand what's going on at all. He has no idea why he's arresting Paul. And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to these people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, that's Christians, to the death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness, uh, can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those uh, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay, let's pause there again very briefly. Paul is saying, Look, I get it, I'm a Jew. I'll talk to you in the Hebrew language so you can tell I'm a Jew. I'm just like you. I cared about the law just like you. I was zealous for the law just like you. In fact, I was so zealous for the law that I was doing to other followers of Christ what you're doing to me. (laughs) I, I get it. In fact, if I was in this city, I would be joining you. No, I would be leading you, watching your coats so that you could persecute me. If you want proof, just ask your elders. Ask the leaders. They used to write me letters so I could go and do what you're doing to me now. What he's doing, he's relating to them. I get what you're saying. I get it. I know what you're going through. I know why you hate me. (laughs) But he continues. Join me in verse 37. I know I'm sorry. Verse 6, because something changes. And I I was on my way on the road to Damascus and drew near to Damascus, About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus. There you will be told... That uh, told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, (laughs) that's his credentials to them, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, a popular Jewish man, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him and he said the god of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one that's jesus and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a witness for him everywhere of what you have seen and heard and now why do you wait rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name okay pause one more time do you see what he's doing not only is he relating to him, that's what he does first. Then what he's doing is, from that place, he shares his testimonies, telling him basically this. Look, the only difference between you and me is him. The only difference between me throwing the stones and me being thrown at is him. Is that Jesus Christ believing that Jesus Christ is actually the Lord, actually the Messiah that I believe him to be. And and then he tells them how they can respond to Jesus too. Last, Last lines, right? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. How bold is that? He's not a coward. He is using this opportunity in front of a persecuting crowd to tell them how they can join him on his side. If you were in that crowd, you'd probably be thinking, i like it down here a little bit more. It's a little bit safer on this side of the stones. But he continues in verse 17, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, the temple that you just dragged me out of, I fell into a trance and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was about to be shed, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He's working the coat room. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And he would continue the story, but they interrupt. Verse 22. Up to this word, the word Gentiles, (laughs) they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from this earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. He was still confused. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? <laughs> it's a little a rhetorical question. When the centurion heard this, he, said, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had, been, that he had bound him. It's long. But man, who, who, who says the Bible's boring? That's, that is action-packed, and it's, it's the tone that the rest of the book of Acts is going to take. But what do we do with it? It sounds, like I said before, it sounds like just another story of persecution, and it is another story of persecution. But, but when we look at this one specifically, what is it that God wants us to take away from this? Well, I think the answer to that is actually— able to be seen simply by stepping back and looking at everything that happened to Paul there with broad brushstrokes, looking at this picture through a broad angle lens, wide angle lens. Though warned, he was warned. He knew what was going to happen to him when he came to Jerusalem. Agabus told him a couple weeks ago, you will be bound just like the owner of this belt (laughs) is bound. But motivated by his love for his brother, he goes to Jerusalem, even at the risk of his own life. And once there, he humbles himself, laying down his rights, submitting to the law so that he can bring them the good news. And while there, the people that he came to love, the people that he came to minister to, turn against him. They seize him. Sorry, they stir up the crowds. They seize him. They drag him out. They falsely accuse and slander him. They beat him. They call out away with him. They seek to kill him. And not only does that sound familiar to what he has gone through before, that sounds remarkably similar to what his Lord had gone through before. The shape of this passage mirrors the suffering of Christ in so many ways. Not perfectly, but close. They do to Paul here what they did to Jesus. Probably, in part, the same crowd. Because what do they do to Jesus? Well, Jesus, knowing what lie before him, motivated by love, he set his face towards Jerusalem, Luke nine fifty one. He humbled himself even to the point of death, to death on the cross, Philippians 2, 8. He laid down his rights to bring the good news of the kingdom to them. And while here, he... The people that he came to save turned against him as well. They stirred up the crowds against him, Mark 15. They seized him in the garden, Luke 22. They dragged him before the officials, Luke 22. They falsely accuse and slander him, Luke 23. They beat him, Luke 22. They call out, away with this man, Luke 22, 23. And they cry, crucify him, Luke 23. And then they do kill him, Luke 23, 46. Paul's ministry is a model of self-sacrificial love. And we've seen that, I mean, throughout the last couple chapters of this book. But when we consider that, and then look at this passage, what we're seeing is that when we're imitating Paul's example of self-sacrificial love, what we're really doing, 1 Corinthians 11, we are imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. It's Jesus' self-sacrificial love that gives us the model of humble love. He gives us a model to live by. A humility that should shape our church. A love that should shock our communities. A culture where people care more about the other than they do themselves. Who have this mind amongst themselves. Who, uh, the mind that Christ had for us who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laid down his rights for us. But the thing with Jesus is that he doesn't only give us a model to imitate, he does so much more. (laughs) He gives us a reason to hope. Not only does he show us how we should live, but he gives us life himself when we turn boldly and confidently to him by faith.